Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 60. Episode 60 is a continuation of episode 59. In today's episode, we tell those final parts of the story where we are transitioning from Parkland to Air Force One. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 60 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Regarding passengers, there was still more to come. Shortly, another wave of them would arrive, a mixture of Kennedy and Johnson people and the first group of those loyal to Kennedy. That group included Evelyn Lincoln, President Kennedy's secretary, and the two ladies-in-waiting for Jackie Kennedy, the two ladies that were on the trip with her, Pam Turner and Mary Gallagher. Johnson's entourage added Mary Famer, who was Johnson's secretary, and Liz Carpenter, a former newspaper reporter turned Johnson confidant. All of them, too, were immediately feeling the oddity of being on the same plane together. They weren't used to mingling with one another. For this ride, though, the Kennedy clan would have a decidedly different final experience on Air Force One. The new president was gathering his entourage. Albert Thomas was the first to volunteer, saying, We are ready to carry out any orders that you have, Mr. President. Cliff Carter made his way to a phone in the rear of the plane, calling his own wife and asking her to get in touch with the wife of Rufus Youngblood and to let her know that her husband was okay. Carter was aware of press reports that stated or implied that Secret Service agents had been shot. He wanted her to know right away that her husband was okay. Right in the middle of making the call, a hammering sound had begun. It was Sergeant Ayers, the airplane steward, and he was removing two rows of seats in the cabin to make room for the casket that would shortly be delivered to the plane. The TV was still on in the stateroom, and at 1.38 p.m., those who were inside it still watched Walter Cronkite make the news official with his now iconic and famous announcement of the president's death. Something the group on the plane already knew, but hearing it from Walter Cronkite was bone-chilling and confirming because hearing any news from Walter Cronkite in those days seemed to make it true. Maybe even more truer in this case. Once Johnson got settled in and made his way to the presidential bedroom, he would begin making a series of important and historical calls. And we covered the most important of those in our last episode as he called Bobby Kennedy. Everyone on board began to feel the transition of power. Johnson's decision to go home on Air Force One and force the Kennedy and Johnson team members to all ride together on the same plane, well... It was already sending a message that the transition of power was swiftly underway. 
Johnson would engage in several more important calls besides the ones with Bobby Kennedy. The first is a call from McGeorge Bundy, President Kennedy's national security advisor. The second was from Walter Jenkins, one of Johnson's most trusted aides. Both men tell him that he should return to the Capitol immediately. And Johnson says he will not leave without Jackie Kennedy, and she has let it be known that she will not leave without her husband's body. So these events must happen then in sequence. Johnson will wait for Jackie and the president's body to arrive and be loaded. Johnson would further tell both of them that he does not want to be remembered as an abandoner of beautiful widows. By 1.43, Colonel Swindle radios Andrews Air Force Base, telling them that they are standing by for takeoff. But no takeoff yet. Johnson would continue to make other calls, first calling Irving Goldberg, a lawyer and a friend. After a short discussion, they decide to ask U.S. District Court Judge Sarah T. Hughes to administer the oath of office of the president. Hughes was a longtime friend of Johnson, and he had contributed materially to her appointment to the federal bench. After the call to Goldberg, Johnson asked his secretary, Mary Famer, to call Hughes's office, and she does just that. But a law clerk tells her that the judge is not in and that he believes that she's at the trademark, where she went to see President Kennedy make his speech. Femmer hangs up and lets Johnson know that Hughes can't be found. Johnson responds, and he tells her to call the office back. But this time, Johnson grabs hold of the phone once they're patched through. He says but one thing to the recipient on the other end of that phone. This is Lyndon Johnson. Find her. About 12 minutes later, somewhere right around 2.02 p.m., Johnson's people finally get word that Judge Hughes has been located and that she was on her way to Air Force One. Cecil Stoughton knew that this was an epic moment in presidential history, in American history, indeed in world history. Getting a picture of it, the swearing-in, that is, would be something for posterity, something never before captured and hopefully never again necessary. Stoughton decides to approach Liz Carpenter and Mary Famer. Sweating and ashen-colored from the heat in the cabin and the emotion of the moment, he asks them to ask the president. He would say that this is a history-making moment, and while it seems tasteless, I am here to make a picture if he cares to have it, and I think we should have it. About 12 minutes after 2.14 p.m., the white hearse carrying the president's body finally pulls up at the ramp near the rear of Air Force One. The hearse itself is followed by two other cars, and as they all come to a stop, a herd of Secret Service agents and Kennedy men exit from the vehicles. They include three Secret Service agents well known in this story already. In particular, they were Bill Greer, the driver of President Kennedy's limousine, Roy Kellerman, who had been in the front passenger seat with Greer and who was ostensibly in charge of the Secret Service men on the ground in Dallas for the visit, and Clint Hill, the man in charge of guarding Jackie Kennedy, 
who had sprinted forward to climb onto the back of the presidential limousine after the shots were fired. President Kennedy's closest advisors were now also there. They were following the hearse and were in the other two cars. They included the members of the Irish Mafia, his close network of lifetime friends and Boston confidants, Kenny O'Donnell, Larry O'Brien, and Dave Powers. These men were there for the whole thing. In fact, Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers saw the whole thing. The horrific moment the shots were fired. Powers himself would have his own horrific badge made of that day. His brown suit had a bloodstain that was easy to spot, no doubt caused by when he had helped to get the president in or out of Parkland. Dr. Berkeley, President Kennedy's personal physician, was also there with that group, as was General McHugh. Another one of Kennedy's military aides, General Ted Clifton, was also in the group. Together, they would remove the giant bronze casket from the hearse, a casket that was now tasked with carrying the president back to Washington. As many of them as there were, these men collectively struggled to get the 800-pound casket up the incline of the ramp and into Air Force One. But every one of them was determined to be a part of their own personal funeral procession that was to be recorded for history as they carried the president's body, not to his grave, but out of the killing zone that had caused his demise. These loyal men would have their very own and very personal public moment of doing that. They hoisted this massive edifice up over their shoulders and struggled to keep it upright and balanced as they made their way up in an awkward, unrehearsed, and wobbly fashion on the ramp. The casket itself was so big that, without alteration, it would not fit through the door of Air Force One. But the casket was getting on. Just like the fight that had just been had at Parkland over the president's body, there was no stopping this group. The president was getting on this plane for his last flight on Air Force One. They would quickly retrieve the axe on the plane. There is one of them on every plane like that. And they would go to work on the handles of the casket, chopping them off and providing just enough clearance to now get the casket through the door and onto Air Force One and then secured in the spot where Sergeant Ayers had removed the seats in order to accommodate it. Of course, the most important living passenger in that three-vehicle entourage was there too. Jackie Kennedy was in the back of the hearse, riding with her husband's body, and she too followed the casket up the steps, heading straight for the bedroom. What she found next was shocking. There in the presidential bedroom was Johnson, Mary Famer, and Rufus Youngblood. And depending on the account of this story, Johnson was either still on the bed or had just lifted himself off of it. His crass behavior was a lifelong trait, and it came out over and over during one of the most crushing moments of world history. Still, it was at a moment's notice in the same event that these crass actions were followed by tender words or deeds of support, in a way, a way to recompense. But his behavior, even for those that knew him, was filled often with these dichotomies. And, as a result, it was always tough to determine what was real and 
what was merely a cover for the dark feelings that were undoubtedly always circulating underneath. It was purely a mystery when it came to assessing the true feelings, motives, and actions of Lyndon Johnson. All four of them, now in the bedroom together, were mortified, and all of them, all four of them, then retreated out of the bedroom for that moment. Jackie made her way to the aft cabin next to the casket, while Johnson and his group made their way to the stateroom. That moment in the bedroom had been awkward for Johnson and for the others, too. Johnson knew he had to recompense of sorts, so he located Ladybird, and together they returned to find Jackie, convincing her to go back into the bedroom. The Johnsons then sat with her on one end of the bed and engaged in a personal moment of sorrow and comfort. As a part of that private moment, Lady Bird in later years would recount what she wrote in her personal diary, what she said to Jackie at that moment. And in later years, it would come to be known as another awkward thing said by a Johnson to Jackie in a most awkward moment. Oh, Mrs. Kennedy, Lady Bird says, you know, we never even wanted to be vice president. And now, dear God, it's come to this. As you might expect, there was nothing for Jackie to say of this comment. And she didn't. The conversation continued between the Johnsons and Jackie as they all sat on the bed. Jackie appeared in shock. And then she said, Oh, what if I had not been there? I was so glad I was there. And then again, right away, came a most inappropriate remark as Lady Bird struggled for the right thing to say to Jackie. I don't know what to say, Lady Bird would say. What wounds me most of all is that this should happen in my beloved state of Texas. To this again, Jackie said nothing. She was stunned and maintained her silence. Her pink outfit, stained with the gore of the event, her clothes still contained fragments of her husband's skull and brain. One of her stockings was almost completely lacquered in blood. Her right glove, white that morning, is caked and stiff with it. Her left glove is missing. Lady Bird asks her if she can get someone to help her change. No, Jackie says. Perhaps later, I'll ask Mary Gallagher, but not right now. I want them to see what they have done to Jack. The Johnsons then tell Jackie about their plans for the swearing-in. After that revelation, it's time to leave her, and they then do just that. Jackie remains in the bedroom on that same spot in her bed, or at least her bed for the final time. She stares at the walls and looks around the room, and she decides it's time to unbutton and take off the single remaining glove she has on the one covered with blood. And then she does what she would sometimes continue to do in a very private moment. She lights herself a cigarette and the furrowing smoke of it adds to the tale and the morosity of the moment in the presidential bedroom. Meanwhile, now that the president's body and Jackie Kennedy were safely on board Air Force One, Ken O'Donnell was desperate to take off. 
He had just undergone a fight at Parkland to keep the president's body. Who knows what was next? Would the Dallas police decide to stop the plane from taking off and commandeer the body for autopsy? That would put Jackie over the edge, and O'Donnell knew it. Little did he know that Jesse Curry was on the plane, and that was not going to happen. But in his own words, O'Donnell would say, at that moment, I was petrified. And he was afraid Jackie was going to have a heart attack, too. He himself was close to the edge. O'Donnell was the president's rightest right-hand man, and he was used to being in charge in the White House and getting what he wanted when it came to carrying out the president's wishes. In his next move, he heads toward the cockpit, and on the way, he runs into General McHugh, ordering the general to get the plane in the air. But Kenny O'Donnell is no longer in charge. Little did he know that the new president had already given an order directly to McHugh to tell Swindle to keep the plane grounded for now. And he did. There was one more important order of business to be completed before they put the airplane in the air. It was the swearing-in of the new president. Later, O'Donnell would reflect on those moments and realize that for Johnson, the swearing-in was something very personal. Obviously, it would be to any president. But for him... Johnson wanted his longtime friend, Judge Sarah Hughes, to be the one to do it. And if they left Dallas without her doing it, well, it would likely not happen that way. The chance would be lost. So Johnson acted, like so many times in his life, decisively to save the moment for himself. Johnson tells the story differently, but there is no doubt that was at least one of his personal motivations in the circumstance. Regardless, they were not taking off from Love Field until the ceremony was completed. By this time, Malcolm Kilduff, the assistant White House press secretary, had made his way back to Air Force One from Parkland, and he was now escorting three pool reporters onto the plane in rapid succession behind Judge Hughes' arrival. They were Sid Davis of Westinghouse Broadcasting, Merriman Smith of UPI, and Charles Roberts of Newsweek. As they made their way onto the plane, the presence of Judge Hughes and now three principal reporters from the press pool, well, that seemed to be Johnson's cue to get the show on the road, and he did. Seeing them all now on the plane, Johnson then rose from the gold-upholstered chair that he was sitting in, in the stateroom, and he seemed to be ready to be sworn in. Johnson would then say, if there's anybody else aboard who wants to see this, tell them to come in. The stateroom begins to fill. The temperature continues to climb. Almost suffocating are the words that Charles Roberts of Newsweek would later use to describe the physical atmosphere in the room. In one of the earlier phone calls that took place in the presidential bedroom, Nicholas Katzenbach had read the oath out loud, and Mary Famer had dutifully transcribed it on the other end. She was ready now and handed it to the judge. But they still needed a Bible to administer the oath, and Larry O'Brien would look at Jackie and excuse himself to then go find the only thing on board that was close enough for the task at hand. It was a Catholic missile that he found after rummaging in the nightstand in the bedroom. 
It was most likely a gift and it was in its original box, never having been used. In a moment, O'Brien had the box open, the missile out, and was back in the stateroom, handing it over to Judge Hughes. But wait, there was one person still missing from the scene. It was Jackie Kennedy. Kenny O'Donnell was already in the stateroom for the swearing-in when Johnson looked around and then looked at Kenny. Would you ask Mrs. Kennedy to come stand here? Johnson obviously wanted Jackie Kennedy to stand beside him at the swearing-in ceremony, a real symbolic moment, adding legitimacy to his new role. It was calculated. He would be with the wife of the slain president right there beside him. O'Donnell couldn't believe what Johnson was asking for. He responded back, You can't do that. The poor little kid has had enough for one day. To sit here and hear that oath that she heard a few years ago? You, you just can't do that, Mr. President. Well, Johnson says, she said she wanted to do it. O'Donnell wasn't satisfied by this response from Johnson. He kept at it with the new president. I just don't believe that, O'Donnell said, as he headed to the bedroom, knowing that he now had to ask Jackie, but wanting to publicly make one more objection for others to hear of this seemingly outrageous request by the new president. Later, he would describe his own state as hysterical over this request, pacing in the hallway with his hands on his head. But finally, he walked into the bedroom and Jackie was combing her hair. He turned to her and asked, Do you want to go out there? Yes, Jackie replied. I think I ought to. At least I owe that much to the country. What a moment she gave to us all. And we should forever be thankful. At 2.37 p.m. Central Standard Time, Jackie Kennedy came out of the bedroom and entered the stateroom where folks had been waiting patiently for the outcome of this entrance. The participants in the room now offer up silence, just as at a wedding or a funeral. Earlier, she had removed the one remaining bloody glove, but she had decided not to change her clothes. There were 27 observers in the stateroom that day on Air Force One. They were packed in like sardines. The iconic pictures were taken as a photographer would at a wedding or a press event, with Cecil Stoughton directing the participants. Stoughton would climb up on the couch and lean against a wall in a contortion that was necessary to get as good of a perspective as he could in such a short room filled with so many people. He had a new Hasselblad 50mm lens. For those of you who know lenses, Hasselblad is as good as you can get. But at 50 millimeters, this lens had a normal perspective. It was not a wide-angle lens. So even shooting from higher up at a downward angle would leave the scene basically undistorted, which was good. But with a normal lens, he was still having trouble getting all the key players included within the shot. You're going to have to back off just a little bit if I'm going to get you all in he says to Johnson, and the foursome at the center of the portrait. And at Stoughton's command, they would all push back into the watching crowd. Most of them couldn't hear Judge Hughes as she administered the oath as the plane's engines were now coming to life and contributing their own whirling noise to the scene. 
Johnson, interestingly enough, chose to swear rather than affirm the oath, adding, for good measure, four words that are not in the oath. So help me God. He then turned and kissed Lady Bird on the forehead. She was nearly in tears. She, in turn, grabs Jackie's hands and finally, in a fitting momentary comment, she says to Jackie, the whole nation mourns your husband. The ensuing moments would be similar to a press conference with the crowd dispersing after a press photo. Johnson begins to shake hands with the congressman, the pool reporters, and his staff. These individuals that were in the room and experienced the moment with he and Lady Bird. Cecil Stoughton took many pictures that day, and in some of the lesser-known ones, there is more than one smiling face in the crowd. In some ways, a perplexing thing. But in the world of emotionless politics, I guess it's to be expected. A lifetime of achievement crowned at that moment for Lyndon Johnson. Because, at least momentarily, it was a moment of great joy, regardless of how it was obtained. It was an historical event of sorts in other ways, too. It had been a long time since a man from a southern state had been president of the United States. In fact, Lyndon Johnson had just become the first southern president since Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. Andrew Johnson succeeded to the office after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. How ironic and ominous, perhaps, too, that a Southern man named Johnson succeeded in both cases after the assassination of a most beloved president. And with both Johnsons in the early aftermath of the killings suspected of being involved in the plots to kill the president. There were more ironies than this, but these were certainly on the tip of the tongue in that coming week after the capture of Oswald and his killing by Ruby. Among the many people caught in the famous photograph is the man carrying the nuclear codes, contained in a steel briefcase and handcuffed to his wrist, a man never too far away from the current president. On that day, he was a stone's throw away from both, one dead and one alive. There were many in the military who wondered if anything more would happen that day. Would he be needed and pressed into service if they found that the Russians had done it and were going to do more? As the ceremony came to an end, Chief Curry leaned in toward Jackie. God bless you, little lady, he would say in a vernacular that displayed his southern upbringing and genuine desire to comfort her, but you ought to go back and lie down. No, thanks, I'm fine, she would answer back, and then she would make her way back to the aft cabin where she took a seat beside her husband's casket. For the rest of the flight, she would not move from it. Moments later, at 2.47 p.m., Air Force One would be airborne and Colonel Swindle pointed the aircraft as close to vertical as a Boeing 707 could fly safely in a maneuver that enhanced the security of the takeoff. Some people on the ground would describe it as being almost straight up and down. President Johnson had never flown on Air Force One, despite asking on many occasions. 
He always wanted the political value of emerging with the president as they left the plane, photographed together, possibly, and clearly conveying power to the vice president. But it was never to be. President Kennedy had always brought up security concerns, citing that the president and the vice president should not travel on the same plane. This irked Johnson. Well, today, that would be different. Now he was the president, the living president, and the dead president was now on his plane. How privilege can be turned upside down so quickly in the world of power politics. And not bad for a man who had derisively been called Rufus Cornpone by his more polished Northern Kennedy comrades. A moniker that they would give this Southern man which represented his socially crude ways and his unpolished and roughshod approach to things, at least in their eyes. But Johnson was in power now, and whatever they called him behind his back, Rufus Cornpone, or even something worse, well, in the light of day and to his face, he was now Mr. President. Today we're here at the National Museum of the United States Air Force and we had a visit from Mr. Sid Davis who is a press pool reporter on the uh, day that President uh, Kennedy was assassinated in November 23rd, 1963. He was one of the three members of the press who were actually permitted on the aircraft for the inauguration of President Johnson. We heard the shots clearly. We, I heard three distinct shots. Uh, my seatmate on the press bus was Bob Pierpoint of CBS who had covered the war in Korea. So. Uh, he knew what gunfire sounded like. We thought at first it was a motorcycle backfire from one of the many motorcycles alongside of us in the motorcade. Bob Pierpoint jumped out of his seat and said, that's gunfire. And within seconds, we looked up ahead of our bus and uh, we saw a commotion at the presidential limousine area. The distance between us and the car was about 80 feet. Uh, and so... We saw the crowds then responding to the gunfire by charging through the motorcade cars to get to one side of the street or the other. They didn't know where, where to go for safety. They heard the shots. They saw the commotion in the presidential limousine. Uh, there was a grassy knoll, they called it, a uh, grassy area where we saw, I saw a father place his child down on the grass and placed his body on top of the child because they didn't know what was happening, but he knew that he knew he had heard shots and gunfire. So he placed his body on top of his child. We went to the trademark. I ran and found a telephone. There were 2,000 people in the trademark waiting for the president to arrive. They didn't know what happened. They just saw a herd of reporters rushing through the hall looking for telephones. I grabbed a phone, called Washington to my office. They said, the president's at Parkland Hospital. Get, hospital, get there as soon as you can. I first tried to get into the emergency room, and I couldn't. I was under seal. I saw the Secret Service agents cleaning up the back seat of the limousine. Uh, Clint Hill was one of them, uh, cleaning up the, the rear seat where the blood and parts of the president's brain were on the seat. My friend Hugh Seide of Time Magazine had talked to Clint a few minutes before I got there, and I think uh, Hugh Seide, White House correspondent for Time, asked Clint, who was a friend of ours, uh, what, how, how, how's the president? And Clinton said, he's dead. Just like that. 
I had to repeat the pool report so many times that day, filing my story. Uh, while I was filing, a uh, White House official grabbed me and took me side while I was live on the air, and I said, I can't talk to you now, I'm on the air. And he said, you have to come with me, and I said, I can't come with you, I'm on the air. And he said, no, I used some profanity trying to get him loose. He was holding my suit collar, pulling me away. And finally, I just went with him. I said goodbye on, on the air. I'll talk to you later. And I went with him, and they took me downstairs with two other reporters, Merriman Smith of the United Press International, the senior correspondent at the White House, and Chuck Roberts of Newsweek. They're both good friends of mine. Actually, they were mentors. They were older. They'd covered World War II as combat correspondents. Uh, they were wonderful friends. And we, three of us, were placed into an unmarked police car, and we were raced to Love Field. The police officer driving was doing about 70, 75 miles an hour to get to the airport because we didn't know whether Air Force One had taken off yet or not. But President Johnson wanted the press on that airplane. He wanted a, the press to be aboard to witness the swearing-in, which is probably a very wise decision to have witnesses to this thing uh, for history and for just the facts, the real facts, so there are no rumors about what took place. And we arrived at Air Force One when they were placing the casket aboard. Mrs. Kennedy was helping the Secret Service put the casket on board the airplane. The casket would not fit through the hatches. It was too wide. It was a 600-pound bronze casket. The agents went in, inside and got an axe from the inside. The airplanes do have an axe outboard. And they took the axe and they knocked the handles off the airplane. I don't know whether there were four or six handles. And they knocked the handles off. They got it through the hatchway door. I heard the president ask Marie Famer, his secretary, to go and ask Mrs. Kennedy if she would like to stand with him for the swearing in. And she sent word that she did but she needed a few minutes to compose herself. And after a few minutes, Mrs. Kennedy appeared into the conference room. And then at that point, I saw the gravity of the situation. I saw what she had witnessed on her clothing. Her suit, this beautiful raspberry-colored two-piece wool suit, uh, had the markings of the terrible thing that had happened. Pieces of the president's skull, uh, flesh, blood on her clothing, splattered. I looked at uh, Mrs. Kennedy's stockings, and uh, the right stocking was heavily congealed with blood where she had cradled his head in her lap. On the left leg, there was not as much, but there was blood on her left stocking, too. And I realized what she had endured. Uh, she kept up her courage. Uh, she was aware of what was going on. She knew what had happened. Uh, she felt it was her place to be in that picture. I will ever believe that it was part of her patriotism, really, that she felt it was necessary. At some point on the flight, when asked by a, an aide of hers, Mrs. Kennedy, would you like to clean up while we're en route back to Washington? And Mrs. Kennedy said, no, I want them to see what they have done. And those words are reverberated throughout the history of the assassination. Well, you can't help but feel uh, a great deal of uh, 
emotion when you stand here in the airplane that uh, 1963, uh, we're talking well over 50 years, uh, 54 years, 53 or 54 years. Uh, I've, I've not forgotten any part of what took place on the airplane. I, it's as fresh in my mind today as it was back then because I've been asked to tell the story so often. But I never believed that uh, when I was a young reporter in Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio, that I would ever cover a story of this magnitude. I never believed that I would be a pool reporter where it was my responsibility with two other reporters to remember everything that happened so we could report back to the rest of the press that covered President Kennedy's trip to Dallas. The assassination has a lot to do with the impact of Kennedy's involvement with the airplane, of course. The assassination is a big part of it. And the fact that the casket was carried aboard Air Force One back to Washington. Uh, there's no way you can erase the history of it. Uh, and it's associated a lot with Kennedy because Mrs. Kennedy was involved in the design of it. It still remains the same. The, the uh, pattern of the, of the, even on the 747, the pattern pretty much resembles what this airplane looks like. Uh, too many people in foreign lands, this is the United States. So, and it shows the power and strength. That's what it shows. It's, it's a very powerful looking airplane. Thank you for listening to episode 60 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.